0: You're about to listen to episode nine, the final episode in part one of our series, The Alpha Human, all about Socrates. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed creating. So join me as we enter the fray. Heard in episode 8 was the defense that Socrates put forth when he was on trial for his life. In reality, this trial took place over the course of one morning. After laying out his defense, Socrates just stood there, waiting for the votes of the jurors to be tabulated. He made multiple references in his defense speech about having so little time, and you have to empathize with him. Once the juror's votes were recorded and the verdict is read, the defendant is able to make a sentencing recommendation. We have no details on this portion of Socrates' trial. Paul Johnson, in his biography of Socrates, laments the fact that Plato, who had been the chronicler of the trial, instead of Thucydides. The latter was renowned for his attention to detail and long descriptions of surroundings and setting. Plato, not so much. The young philosopher Was much more focused on the thoughts and concepts being delivered by our alpha human. It is our loss. I'm sure the voting was dramatic as it was public. The reading of the verdict must have been heartbreaking. Votes to acquit, 220. Votes to condemn, 280. Now all we have are the words of Socrates as he delivers his sentencing recommendation. Power struggle playing out in this trial between Socrates and his accusers in many ways can be considered a game of chicken. Both sides have reason to compromise and viable positions to take in order to reach that compromise, but Socrates will have none of it. To paraphrase the captain, this is the way they want it. Well, they get it. Now I'll let Socrates take it from here as he responds to hearing the verdict being read. Quote, There are many reasons why I am not grieved, O men of Athens, at the vote of condemnation. I expected this, and am only surprised that the votes are so nearly equal. For I had thought that the majority against me would have been far larger, but now, had thirty votes gone over to the other side, I should have been acquitted. And I may say that I have escaped Miletus. And I may say more. For without the assistance of Anidus and Lycon, he would not have had a fifth part of the votes, as the law requires, in which case he would have incurred a fine of a thousand drachma as is evident. And so he proposes death as the penalty. And what shall I propose on my part, O men of Athens? Clearly that which is my due. And what is that which I ought to pay or to receive? What shall be done to the man who has never had the wit to be idle during his whole life, but has been careless of what the many care about, wealth, and family interests, and military offices, and speaking in the assembly, and magistries, and plots, and parties, Reflecting that I was really too honest a man to follow in this way and live, I did not go where I could do no good to you or to myself, but where I could do the greatest good privately to every one of you. Thither I went and sought to persuade every man among you that he must look to himself and seek virtue and wisdom before he looks to his private interests, and look to the state before he looks to the interests of the state, and that this should be the order in which he observes in all his actions. What shall be done to such a one? Doubtless some good thing, O men of Athens, if he has his reward, and the good should be of a kind suitable to him. What would be a reward suitable to a poor man who is your benefactor, who desires leisure that he may instruct you? There can be no more fitting reward than maintenance in the prytaneum, O men of Athens, a reward which he deserves far more than the citizen who has won the prize at Olympia in the horse or chariot race whether the chariots were drawn by two horses or by many. For I am in want, and he has enough, and he only gives you the appearance of happiness, and I give you the reality. And if I am to estimate the penalty justly, I say that maintenance in the pritanium is the just return. Perhaps you may think that I am braving you in saying this, as in what I said before about the tears and prayers. But that is not the case. I speak rather because I am convinced that I never intentionally wronged anyone. Although I cannot convince you of that, and we have had a short conversation only, but if there were a law at Athens, as such there is in other cities, that a capital case should be not decided in one day, then I believe I should have convinced you. But now the time is too short. I cannot in a moment refute great slanders, and as I am convinced that I never wronged another, I will assuredly not wrong myself. I will not say of myself that I should deserve any evil or propose any penalty. Why should I? Because I am afraid of the penalty of death that Miletus proposes? When I do not know whether death is a good or an evil, why should I propose a penalty which would certainly be an evil? Shall I say imprisonment? And why should I live in prison, and be the slave of the magistrates of the year? Or shall be the penalty be a fine, and the imprisonment until the fine is paid? There is the same objection. I should have to lie in prison, for money I have none, and I cannot pay. And if I say exile, and this may be possibly the penalty which you will affix, I must indeed be blinded by the love of life if I were to consider that when you, who are my own citizens, cannot endure my discourses and words, and have found them so grievous and odious that you would fain have done with them, others are likely to endure me. No, indeed, men of Athens, that is not very likely. And what a life should I lead at my age, wandering from city to city, living in ever-changing exile and always being driven out? For I am quite sure that when to whatever place I go, as here, so also there, the young men will come to me. And if I drive them away, their elders will drive me out at their desire. And if I let them come, their fathers and friends will drive me out for their sakes. Someone will say, Yes, Socrates, but cannot you hold your tongue, and then you may go into a foreign city, and no one will interfere with you? Now I have great difficulty in making you understand my answer to this. For if I tell you that this would be a disobedience to a divine command, and therefore, that I cannot hold my tongue, you will not believe that I am serious. And if I say again that the greatest good of man is daily to converse about virtue, and that all concerning which you hear me examining myself and others, and that the life which is unexamined is not worth living, that you will still less likely to believe. And yet what I say is true, although a thing of which it is hard for me to persuade you. Moreover, I am not accustomed to think that I deserve any punishment. Had I money, I might have proposed to give you what I had, and have been none the worse. But you see that I have none, and can only ask you to proportion the fine to my means. However, I think that I could afford a menai. Therefore, I propose that penalty. Now, Plato, Crito, Critobulus, and Apollodorus, my friends here, bid me to say 30 menai, and they will be the sureties. Well then, I'll say 30 menai. Let that be the penalty, for they will be ample security to you. Unquote. How's that for a response to the verdict? In that short speech, Socrates not only maintains his innocence, but as far as punishment is concerned, he thinks he should get a holiday in his honor and be subsidized by the state like a victor at the Olympic Games. He then goes on to suggest that since he cares not for money, that he could pay a fine if that would make them happy. He could, say, pay a couple bucks? I would give anything to have been there in the audience for this portion of the trial. Socrates' response must have sent the crowd into an uproar the effects of his words in no way could have been expected. I mean, it should have been. If they had any knowledge of the man, Socrates, it would have been apparent that he would have responded in such a manner. We know it had a major effect on the jurors and how they felt about Socrates because they voted on the sentence of death. I guess they didn't take Socrates' suggestion of a fine seriously. And the number of votes to sentence to death increased by 80 versus the number of votes for guilty. That's what a response like Socrates' can do. 280 80 out of 500 men felt he was guilty of the crimes, 360 out of 500 men felt that he should die for them. Once more, Socrates responds, quote, Not much time will be gained, O Athenians, in return for the evil name which you will get from the detractors of the city, who will say that you killed Socrates, a wise man, for they will call me wise even though I am not wise when they want to reproach you. If I had waited a little while, your desire would have been fulfilled in the course of nature for I am far advanced in years, as you may perceive, and not far from death. I am speaking now only to those who have condemned me to death. And I have another thing to say to them. You think that I was convicted through deficiency of words. I mean, that if I had thought fit to leave nothing undone, nothing unsaid, I might have gained an acquittal. Not so. The deficiency which led to my conviction was not of words, certainly not. But I had not the boldness, nor impudence, or inclination to address you as you would have liked me to address you, weeping and wailing and lamenting, and saying and doing many things which you have been accustomed to hear from others, and which, as I say, are unworthy of me. But I think that I ought not to do anything common or mean in the hour of danger. Nor do I now repent of the manner of my defense, and I would rather die having spoken after my manner than speak in your manner and live. For neither in war, nor yet at law ought any man to use every way of escaping death. For often in battle, there is no doubt that if a man will throw away his arms and fall on his knees before his pursuers, he may escape death. And in other dangers, there are other ways of escaping death, if a man is willing to say and do anything. The difficulty, my friends, is not in avoiding death, but in avoiding unrighteousness, for that runs faster than death. I am old and move slowly. And the slower runner has overtaken me, and my accusers are keen and quick, and the faster runner who is unrighteousness has overtaken them. And now I depart hence condemned by you to suffer the penalty of death, and they too go their ways condemned by the truth to suffer the penalty of villainy and wrong, and I must abide by my award, let them abide by theirs. I suppose that these things may be regarded as fated, and I think they are as well. And now, O men who have condemned me, I would fain prophecy to you, for I am about to die, and that is the hour in which men are gifted with prophetic power, and I prophesy to you, who are my murderers, that immediately after my death, punishment far heavier than you have inflicted on me will surely await you. Me you have killed because you wanted to escape the accuser, and not to give an account of your lives. That will not be as you suppose, far otherwise. For I say there will be more accusers of you than they are now, accusers whom hitherto I have restrained. And as they are younger, they will be much more severe with you, and you will be much more offended at them. For if you think that by killing men you can avoid the accuser censuring your lives, you are mistaken. That is not a way of escape which is either possible or honorable. The easiest and noblest way is not to be crushing others, but to be improving yourselves. This is the prophecy which I utter before my departure to the judges who have condemned me. Friends who have acquitted me, I would like also to talk to you about this thing which has happened while the magistrates are busy and before I go to the place at which I must die. Stay then a while, for we may as well talk with one another while there is time. You are my friends, and I should like to show you the meaning of this event which has happened to me. Oh, my judges, for you I may truly call judges, I should like to tell you of a wonderful circumstance, Hitherto the familiar voice within me that has constantly been in the habit of opposing me even about trifles. If I was going to make a slip or error about anything, and now as you see, there has come upon me which may be thought, and is generally believed to be, the last and worst evil. But the voice made no sign of opposition, either as I was leaving my house and going out in the morning, or when I was going up into this court, or while I was speaking, at anything which I was going to say, and yet I have often been stopped in the middle of a speech but now in nothing I either said or did touching this matter has the voice opposed me. What do I take to be the explanation of this? I will tell you. I regard this as a proof that what has happened to me is a good, and that those who think that death is an evil are an error. This is a great proof to me of what I am saying, for the customary sign would surely have opposed me had I been going to evil and not to good. Let us reflect in another way, and we shall see that there is great reason to hope that death is a good, for one of two things, either death is a state of nothingness and utter unconsciousness, or as men say, there is a change and migration of the soul from this world to another. Now if you suppose that there is no consciousness but a sleep like the sleep of him who is undisturbed even by the sight of dreams, death will be an unspeakable gain. For if a person were to select the night in which his sleep was undisturbed even by dreams, and were to compare that with the other days and nights of his life, and then were to tell us how many days and nights he had passed in the course of his life better and more pleasurably than this one, I think that any man, I will not say just private man, but even the great king, will not find such days or nights when compared with the others. Now if death is like this, I say that to die is gain, for eternity then is only a single night. But if death is the journey to another place, and there are, as men say, all the dead, what good, O friends and judges, can be greater than this? If indeed, when the pilgrim arrives in the world below, he is delivered from the professors of justice in this world, and finds the true judges who are said to give judgment there, Minos, Redanthemus, Achis, and other sons of God who are righteous in their own life, that pilgrimage would be worth making. What would not a man give if he might converse with Orpheus, and Musius and Hesiod, and Homer? Nay, if this be true, let me die again and again. I, too, shall have a wonderful interest in a place where I can converse with Palamedes, and Ajax, the son of Telamon, and other heroes of old who have suffered death through an unjust judgment. There will be no small pleasure, as I think, in comparing my own sufferings with theirs. After all, I shall be able to continue my search into true and false knowledge, as in this world, so also in that. I shall find out who is wise and who pretends to be wise and is not. What would not a man give, O judges, to be able to examine the leader of the great Trojan expedition, or Odysseus, or Sisyphus, or numberless others, men and women? What infinite delight would there be in conversing with them and asking them questions? For in that world they do not put a man to death for this, certainly not. For besides being happier in that world than in this, they will be immortal, if what is said is true. Wherefore, O judges, be of good cheer about death, and know this of a truth, that no evil can happen to a good man either in life or after death. He and his are not neglected by the gods, nor has my own approaching end happened by mere chance. But I see clearly that to die and to be released was better for me. Therefore the voice gave no sign. For which reason also I am not angry with my accusers or my condemners, for they have done me no harm, although neither of them meant to do me any good, and for this I may gently blame them. Still I have a favour to ask of them. When my sons have grown up, I would ask you, O friends, to punish them, and to have you trouble them as I have troubled you, if they seem to care about riches or anything more than about virtue, or if they pretend to be something when they are really nothing, then reprove them, as I have reproved you for not caring about for which they ought not to care, and thinking that they are something when they are really nothing. And if you do this, I and my sons will have received justice at your hands. The hour of departure has arrived. We go our ways, I to die and you to live. Which is better? God only knows. Damn, the noblest and most virtuous way is not in crushing others, but in improving yourself. That almost reads... As a tweet. How about his take on death? Once again, Socrates acknowledges his own ignorance on what happens when you die. He offers two options. One is either eternal slumber, and the other is a Hades where everyone is happy and immortal. In either case, he would find it a good thing to have. I got a special kick out of him fantasizing about continuing his gadfly nature and subjecting all the heroes and thinkers of history to his Socratic method. He was especially looking forward to the fact that they couldn't execute him. First, because they were so exceedingly happy, and second, for there has to be a second reason, as to simply rely on the fickle nature of humans and their happiness was something that Socrates had experienced with. But he did appreciate the fact that there was immortality. That was the second reason. They couldn't kill him. (laughs) That's funny. So much for making new friends in the afterlife. His final lines are killer, too. The hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways, I to die and you to live. Which is better? God only knows. But Socrates did not die within the hour. In fact, it would be over a month before the sentence would be carried out. This was a deviation from the normal procedure. Typically, the condemned were executed within an hour of conviction, the very definition of swift justice. In the case of Socrates, the gods got in the way. A ship commemorating the hero Theseus' journey to Crete was stuck in Crete. By law, there could be no state-sanctioned executions until the ship's journey was completed by returning to Athens. Now, this whole trip usually took about a day. Due to a very uncommon wind direction change, this delay stretched into weeks. Socrates used those weeks to take visitors, make new friends, and continue to philosophize. So while awaiting the return of the ship, Socrates was kept in jail. It was not a place for long-term occupancy. Most guests' stay were measured in minutes as they awaited that swift same-day execution we talked about a minute ago. The 70-year-old Socrates had no bed, no mattress, nothing but a stone cell. They shackled him. I'm not sure why this particular detail strikes me as cruel considering the harsh times we have been covering, but the thought of Socrates, nothing to keep him warm, heavy iron shackles cutting into his wrists and ankles, bugs me. I mean, what the hell did the Athens think he was going to do? I mean, he was practically begging for death. I have to remind myself that there was still a general tenor of violence and vengeance in the air. Athens had been taking it in the shorts for decades. But also the more practical feeling that people who dislike Socrates, his accusers, really hated him. And they wanted him to suffer. It was probably hard for his enemies to do this, as Socrates still had many friends. In fact, he kept making friends. In the end, one of them ends up being the jailer himself, the man responsible for placing the shackles on his scarred and bloody ankles. Socrates is going to Socrates, right? Despite the hardships, or more likely because of them, Socrates flourished over the last 30 days. His fate decided it was as close to sitting back and kicking up his heels as he could get. All manner of visitors came and went from the jailhouse. For a brief time, and it turns out not the last time, a jail cell became the center of the philosophical universe. One early morning, right before dawn, Socrates' best friend, his oldest friend, Crito, shows up at the jail. Socrates is surprised to see him, but guesses at once why his friend appears before him. The boat has left Crete. It should arrive this afternoon. Crito tells his friend that tomorrow will be the day that he dies. Now, we know this conversation took place because Plato devoted a dialogue to it, entitled Crito. It is a short work and is thought to be one of the earliest dialogues produced by Plato. It's also pretty exciting. It's all about a jailbreak. Crito and his pals want to break Socrates out of jail. They have the money to bribe the guard and others to allow Socrates to bust out and flee to another city state. And Crito is very adamant about it. He says, quote, there are persons who at no great cost are willing to save you and bring you out of prison. And as for the informers, you may observe that they are far from being exorbitant in their demands. A little money will satisfy them. My means, which, as I am sure, are ample, are at your service, and if you have any scruple about spending all of mine, there are strangers who give you the use of theirs. One of them, Simeus the Theban, has brought a sum for this very purpose. And Sebes and many others are willing to spend their money too. I say, therefore, do not on that account Hesitate about making your escape, and do not say, as you did in court, that you will have any difficulty in knowing what to do with yourself if you escape. For men will love you in other places to which you may go, and not in Athens only. There are friends of mine in Thessaly, and if you would go to them, they will value and protect you, and no Thessalian will give you any trouble. Nor can I think that you are justified, Socrates, in betraying your own life when you might be saved. This is playing into the hands of your enemies and destroyers. And moreover, I should say that you were betraying your children, for you might bring them up and educate them, instead of which you go away and leave them, and they will have to take their chance, and if they do not meet with the usual fate of orphans, they will be no small thanks to you. No man should bring children into the world who is unwilling to persevere to the end in their nurture and education, but you are choosing the easier part, as I think, not the better or manlier, which would rather have become one who professes virtue in all his actions like yourself. And indeed, I am ashamed not only of you, but of us who are your friends, when I reflect that this entire business of yours will be attributed to our want of courage. The trial need never have come on, or might have been brought to another issue. And the end of all, which is the crowning absurdity, will seem to have been permitted by us through cowardice and baseness. Who might have saved you, as you might have saved yourself, if we had been good for anything, and we did not see how disgraceful, Socrates? and also miserable all this was to us as well as to you. Make up your mind, then, or rather have your mind already made up. For the time of deliberation is over, and there is only one thing to be done, which must be done, if at all, this very night, and which any delay will render all but impossible. I beseech you, therefore, Socrates, to be persuaded by me, and do as I say. But Socrates will have none of it. Why compound an existing evil with another evil? Socrates repeats the arguments he made at his trial. Where should he go and still be Socrates? Who would have him if the love of his life, his beauty, Athens, wants him dead? Besides, leaving is out of the question, Socrates and Athens are one and the same, at least in the mind of the philosopher. In conversing with Crito, Socrates is acting the part of the city-state of Athens, confronting Socrates on his desire to break out of jail. The city is asking Socrates how someone, who is so much a part of the city, can wish to do it harm by forgoing its laws. How can the mighty Socrates justify wanting to be somewhere else when the opposite is the case? So here's Socrates speaking as the city-state, questioning him. Socrates as the city-state says, There is clear proof, Socrates, that we in the city are not displeasing to you. Of all Athenians, you have been the most constant resident in the city, which, as you never leave, you may be supposed to love. For you never went out of the city either to see the games, except once when you went to the Isthmus, or to any other place unless you were on military service. Nor did you travel as other men do, nor had you or any curiosity to know other states or their laws. Your affections did not go beyond us or the state, and we were your especial favorites, and you acquiesced in our government of you, and this is the state in which you begat your children, which is proof of your satisfaction. Moreover, you might, if you had liked, have fixed the penalty at banishment in the course of the trial. The state, which refutes to let you go now, would have let you go then. But you pretended that you preferred death to exile, and then you were not grieved at death, and now you have forgotten these fine sentiments, and pay no respect to us, the laws of whom you are the destroyer, and are doing what a miserable slave would do, running away and turning your back upon the compacts and agreements which you made as a citizen? And first of all, answer this very question, are we right in saying that you agreed to be governed according to us in deed and not in word only? Is that true or not? How shall we answer that, Crito? Must we not agree? Unquote. Socrates wins the day. He usually does. They finish up their dialogue with Socrates describing the inner voice or spirit that guides his thought. He says, quote, this is the voice I seem to hear murmuring in my ears, like the sound of a flute in the ears of a mystic. That voice, I say, is ringing in my ears and prevents me from hearing any other. I know that anything more you have to say to me will be in vain, yet speak if you have anything to say. Crito answers, I have nothing to say, Socrates. Socrates finishes by saying, Let me follow the intimations of the will of God. The Crito dialogue is important not only in its historical significance, but also in its ability to shed light on the mind of Socrates. A key passage happens when the argument begins And Socrates asks Crito a question. Again, Crito, may we do evil? Crito answers, surely not, Socrates. Socrates then continues, and what of doing evil or in return for evil? Which is the morality of the many? Is that just or not? Crito, not just. Socrates, for doing evil to another is the same as injuring him? Crito, very true. Socrates, then we ought not to retaliate or render evil for evil to anyone, whatever evil we may have suffered from him. But I would have you consider, Crito, whether you really mean what you are saying, for this opinion has never been held or never will be held by any considerable number of persons. And those who are agreed and those who are not agreed upon this point have no common ground and can only despise one another when they see how widely they differ. Tell me, then, whether you agree with and assent to my first principle, that neither injury, nor retaliation, or nor warding off evil by evil, is ever right. And shall that be the premise of our agreement? Or do you decline and dissent from this? For this has been of old, and is still my opinion. But if you are of another opinion, let me hear what you have to say. If, however, you remain of the same mind as formerly, I will proceed to the next step. You will proceed, says Crito, for I have not changed my mind. End quote. As this is the final episode of part one of the series, this is this is a little groundwork for part two when we dive into the philosophic world of Socrates. The phrase doing evil in return for doing evil may sound familiar. Not word for word familiar, but the sense of it. For me it seems very similar to the old eye for an eye morality that was discussed in previous episodes. If you thought that too, cool. Socrates is taking aim at one of the most ingrained parts of our collective human evolution, that of the need for revenge. For the sake of part one versus part two, at this point, it is most important to note that Socrates had to elicit an agreement from his oldest friend that they agreed on this point. That is how out of left field this belief was. Socrates was not sure that his closest confederates were on board with this newfangled concept of morality. He had to make sure. Now, Crito leaves, and Socrates spends his last day meeting with friends and discussing high matters like courage, virtue, and death. At last, the fateful morning arrives. This day is chronicled in Plato's dialogue, The Phaedo. Chronologically speaking, The Phaedo was written years after the Apology in Crito. It is a much more stylistic dialogue, written as a discussion between two men, one of them who was present at the death of Socrates, and the other who wasn't basically told as a long flashback. Just from a stylistic standpoint, it is a much more designed work meant to elicit feelings of grief and loss. Socrates spends most of the morning with his family. Around lunch, they leave and his cadre of friends and followers attend to him. Interestingly, Plato is ill and not able to attend. Remembering that Plato wrote this years later makes me wonder why he left that detail in there. It was not uncommon for him not to be in the dialogue, so to draw attention to the fact that he wasn't in this one may have been more of a political move on Plato's part to distance himself from the Socrates haters. At any event, the main conversation they have that day centers around death. At this point, some 30 days removed from stating that he had no idea what to expect when he died, Socrates had now worked out an elaborate system of the afterlife complete with angels, reincarnation, and a heaven. Hmm. Sounds like Plato got a little creative in using Socrates as his mouthpiece. But that is certainly getting ahead of ourselves. As important as the viability of a complete 180 degree turn in philosophical belief in one month by one of the most consistent men of all time, that's not the crux of this episode. A great deal of time, will be spent in parts two and three of this series to what has been called the Socrates problem. This dialogue is not important for our purposes at this point other than as a quasi-historical document on the final moments of Socrates' life. Once the talk of the neophyte supernatural system has subsided, the sun was beginning to set, and the time had come for Socrates to have his life ended by decree of the state for impiety and corruption of youth. And this brings me to a point where I get a little emotional. It is silly, I guess, to get worked up over something that happened 2,600 years ago, but I do. When I first decided to do this project, I wanted to present a picture of philosophy that was of the flesh-and-blood variety. Not to remove metaphysics from discussion, or to put forth any agenda, other than does what you say work in action, and if not, why? In order to know that, I thought it was necessary to trudge back some 40,000 years into the past and carry you along with me until we finally met and could spend time with the very unique individual named Socrates. In short, I feel it necessary to know how a philosopher lived in order to know more about how they thought. Turns out, I was not alone in this belief. There is this great book out there called The Book of Dead Philosophers, written by Simon Critchley, that takes the same tact save for the fact that he is taking it from the other direction. He believes understanding how philosophers died can give great insight into what they believed. He begins his book with a chapter entitled Learning How to Die, colon, Socrates. He then proceeds to spend more time on Socrates than any other philosopher in his book, that's a man after my own heart, and bestows upon him an exalted position in the pantheon of facing death. After giving a high-level rundown of his life in trial, Critchley finishes up his chapter on learning how to die this way. Quote, There has never been a more important time to emphasize this distinction between philosophy and sophistry. We are surrounded by countless new sophistries. Televangelists offer authoritative knowledge of the true word of God and perform miraculous cures in exchange for appropriate donations to the cause. An entire new age industry has arisen where knowledge, capital K, of something called self, capital S, is traded in expensive, brightly colored wrappings. I think it fair to say that Western societies, and not just Western societies, are experiencing a deep meaning gap that risks broadening into an abyss. This gap is being filled by various forms of obscurantism that conspire to promote the belief that, first, such a thing as self-knowledge is attainable, second, it comes with a price tag, and third, it is completely consistent with the pursuit of wealth, pleasure and personal salvation. By contrast, Socrates never claimed to know, never promised knowledge to others, and crucially, never accepted a fee. What this desire for certainty betrays is a profound terror of death and an overwhelming anxiety to be quite sure that death is not the end, but the passage to the afterlife. True, if eternal life has an admission price, then who wouldn't be prepared to pay it? By way of contrast, it is striking to go back to Socrates in his skepticism, he does not simply give voice to an uncertainty with regard to life after death, but also raises the question of which is preferable, life or death. The philosopher is the lover of wisdom who does not claim to know, but who expresses a radical doubt with regard to all things, even with regard to whether life or death is better or worse. Even with regard to whether life or death is the better state. Only God knoweth as a slightly more unique translation of Socrates' final words at his trial. Indeed, Diogenes Laertes, author of the hugely influential Lives of Eminent Philosophers from the 3rd century AD, tells a fascinating story of Thales, usually considered the first philosopher. He held there was no difference between life and death. Why then, said one, do you not die? Because, said Thales, there is no difference. Now, to be a philosopher, then, is to learn how to die. And it is to begin to cultivate the appropriate attitude towards death. As Marcus Aurelius writes, "It is one of the noblest functions of reason to know whether it is time to walk out of this world or not. Unknowing and uncertain, the philosopher walks." Unquote. So now we walk into the final moments of our alpha human's long, distinguished, and singular life. Let's let Plato take it from here quote. Now the hour of sunset was near, for a good deal of time had passed when he was within. When he came out, he sat down with us again after his bath, but not much was said. Soon the jailer, who was a servant of the eleven, entered and stood by him, saying, To you, Socrates, whom I know to be the noblest and gentlest and best of all who have ever came into this place, I will not impute the angry feelings of other men, who rage and swear at me when, in obedience to the authorities, I bid them drink the poison. Indeed, I am sure that you will not be angry with me, for others, as you are aware, and not I, are the guilty cause. And so fare you well, and try to bear lightly what must needs be. You know my errand. Then, bursting into tears, he turned away and went out. Socrates looked at him and said, I return your good wishes and will do as you bid. Then, turning to us, he said, How charming this man is. Since I've been in prison, he has always been coming to see me, and at times he would talk to me and was as good as could be to me. And now see how generously he sorrows for me. But we must now do as he says. Crito, let the cup be brought. If the poison is prepared, if not, let the attendant prepare some. Yet, said Crito, the sun is still upon the hilltops, and many a one has taken the draft late, and after the announcement has been made to him, and he has eaten and drunk, and indulged in sensual delights. Do not hasten then, there is still time. Socrates says, Yes, Crito, and they of whom you speak are right in doing thus, for they think that they will gain by the delay. But I am right in not doing thus, for I do not think that I should gain anything by drinking the poison a little later. I should be sparing and saving a life which is already gone. I could only laugh at myself for this. Please then, do as I say, and not to refuse me. Crito, when he heard this, made a sign to the servant, and the servant went in, and remain for some time, and then return with the jailer carrying a cup of poison. Socrates said, You, my good friend, who are experienced in all these matters, shall give me directions how I am to proceed. The jailer answered, You have only to walk about until your legs are heavy, and then lie down, and the poison will act. At the same time he handed the cup to Socrates, who in easiest and gentlest manner, without the least fear or change of color or feature, looking at the man with all his eyes, as his manner was, took the cup and said, What do you say about making a libation out of the cup to any god? May I or not? The man answered, We only prepare, Socrates, just so much as we deem enough. I understand, he said, yet I may and must pray to the gods to prosper my journey from this to that other world. May this, then, which is my prayer, be granted to me. Then holding the cup to his lips, quite readily and cheerfully, he drank off the poison and hitherto most of us had been able to control our sorrow, but now, when we saw him drinking, and saw too that he had finished the draft, we could no longer forbear, and in spite of myself, my own tears were flowing fast, so that I covered my face and wept over myself, for certainly I was not weeping over him, but at the thought of my own calamity in having lost such a companion. Nor was I the first, for Crito, when he found himself unable to restrain his tears, had got up and moved away, and I followed, And at that moment, Apollodorus, who had been weeping all the time, broke out in a loud cry which made cowards of us all. Socrates alone remained calm. What is this strange outcry? he said. I sent away the women mainly in order that they may not offend in this way, for I had heard that men should die in peace. Be quiet, then, and have patience. When we heard that, we were ashamed and refrained our tears. And he walked about until, as he said, his legs began to fail, and then he lay on his back. According to the directions, and the man who gave him the poison now and then looked upon his feet and legs, and after a while he pressed his foot hard and asked him if he could feel it, and Socrates said no, and then his leg, and so upwards and upwards, and showed us that he was cold and stiff. And he felt them himself, and said, When the poison reaches the heart, that will be the end. He was beginning to grow cold about the groin, when he uncovered his face, for he had covered himself up, and said, These were his last words, he said, Crito, I owe a cock to Escolpius. Will you remember to pay the debt? The debt shall be paid, said Crito. Is there anything else? There was no answer to this question. But in a minute or two, a movement was heard, and the attendants uncovered him, and his eyes were set, and Crito closed his eyes and mouth. Such was the end, whom I may truly call the wisest and justest and best of all men, whom I have ever known.